We always appreciate visitors, and you are truly our honored guests. We were particularly surprised by uh, one visitor this morning. Well, two, really. <laughs> one was a real surprise to us because we had not seen Vicki Blackwood in quite some time. In fact, I guess it was I, I was in a gospel meeting at, uh, at, uh, uh, in Huntsville area, and uh, you came to that meeting, which we appreciate. But Vicki Blackwood uh, is here today with uh, her former roommate in college. As a matter of fact, Anna Huddleston, who's a member at East Ridge. But Vicki and our family, we go back a long, long way, all the way back to Indian Creek Youth Camp when I was a much younger man and felt like spending a week uh, in a dusty, uh, hot summer environment with a bunch of kids that we loved dearly and had a great time. Vicki was a counselor there and has uh, continued an association with that great camp. It does a great work, still doing a great work after, what, 45 years or so since we first were involved. But Vicki's family, though, has been a family that has meant so much to us over the years. The Nichols family, Brother Gus Nichols, whose name is very well known, obviously, to I'm sure just about all, if not all, who are here. But uh, Brother Gus Nichols was Vicki's grandfather. And uh, the Nichols family has meant so much to us over the years and has been such an encouragement. When I was a student at Memphis School of Preaching, uh, between our first and second year, Brother Frank Young was one of my teachers. And Brother Frank Young was married to Sister Gracie Nichols Young, uh, another of, uh, of those Nichols' uh, children, and uh, Vicki's aunt. And uh, when we were leaving school, I was coming to Birmingham to work with a congregation just for the summer and then back to school the second year, but to get some, some training, if you will, working with a gospel preacher, Brother Fred Mosley and his good wife, Rama, a great couple, at Hillview. Well, we, Brother Young wanted us to stop in Jasper and uh, visit with the, the Nichols family there and invited us to do that. And so when we got there, it was, I'll never forget that experience, sitting around that dining room table with these gospel preachers whom I had admired and loved so uh, long, so many of them. There was Flavel Nichols, there was W.T. Hamilton, the late W.T. Hamilton. Uh, there was Brother Gus Nichols, and there was Brother Frank Young, and I just sat there listening to them talk about Scripture, and it was a, an experience, as you could imagine, that a, a young uh, preacher student would never forget. But I'll also never forget how Brother Nichols uh, helped us with our dogs. We had two dogs on that trip. Gaylord and Daphne were basset hounds, and a male and a female that we had decided we needed to have a little extra income so we would just get two basset hounds and we'd have puppies and sell those puppies. It worked out pretty well, I guess, but not, not as great as we had hoped. But I'll never forget Brother Gus Nichols taking those two dogs and leading those dogs down and tying them up uh, down in the shade at the old house. They had moved into the new house by then and very graciously taking care of our dogs and tying them up so that they'd be in the cool while we visited there at the Nichols home. Brother Nichols died later that very same uh, summer. Uh, uh, he passed away. But uh, I have so many wonderful memories and the great encouragement that uh, has been offered to me through the years by this great family. And I love and appreciate them so very, very much. Tonight I will be in McMinnville, Tennessee, and uh, speaking at the Bobby Branch Congregation in their summer series, which they have on Sunday nights. And you'll be privileged to hear our brother Tommy Leslie uh, speak tonight. So we encourage all of you to be back tonight 
uh, to hear what we know will be a great lesson from uh, Brother Tommy. In John 4, 24, we find some very familiar words. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, it means to worship with sincerity of heart and in accordance with the truth. I think that can be borne out by Scripture very clearly. Spirit and truth are not saying the same thing. That is, spirit and truth, if they mean the same thing, then the Lord met himself coming back when he said spirit and truth, if truth means the same thing as spirit, as I've heard that contention made. It doesn't really mean worshiping according to a specific pattern, but both mean the same. They both have to do with attitude. Well, how can that possibly be? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him sincerely and sincerely, in spirit and in spirit. No, there is an obvious difference between the meaning of the word spirit in the passage that Jesus gave us here as he exchanged that conversation, had that conversation with the Samaritan woman there in John 4. There's a difference between spirit and truth. I think we get some insight into that very clear distinction when we go back to an Old Testament passage in Joshua 24, verse 14. At the beginning of Joshua chapter 24, Joshua calls together all the people, the heads of the uh, Israelites, all of them, and he rehearses with them in very, very effective fashion what God had done and how God had blessed them throughout their history. And then he comes to this conclusion in verse 14. Now, therefore, serve the Lord in sincerity and truth. I think that's an interesting parallel between John 20, or Joshua 24, 14 and John 4, 24. Serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth. Spirit and truth, Jesus said. Spirit has to do with sincerity. But truth is something else altogether. What is it? Well, we get some insight into that as we look at the Lord's Prayer in John 17. Remember, as he prayed for the apostles in that one portion of his prayer, John 17, at verse 17, he prayed this, Sanctify them through your truth. And then he added, Your word is truth. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Worship God in spirit and truth. Sincerity, yes, but truth, is that sincerity repeated? Of course not. Worshiping God in spirit and truth, if the word is truth, means that we're to worship God in spirit, sincerity, and according to what? The word. According to the word. And that would lead us to believe that there has to be a pattern for worship that God has been concerned with from the very beginning of his dealing with man. And indeed, there is such a pattern. We can go back to the patriarchal dispensation. We can see with the very first worship incident that is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel, that Cain offered the fruit of the ground and Abel offered an animal sacrifice, the firstling of his flock, that blood sacrifice, and that God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's sacrifice. Why? Because Cain was insincere as we have often said, we have no reason to accuse Cain of being insincere in what he offered. There's nothing in the text that would indicate that. There has to be some other reason clearly given then, doesn't there, does there not, why God rejected Cain's sacrifice? Well, we get the answer to that when we come to Hebrews 11:4, 4, 
And we see there in that great chapter that by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. The verse goes on to say, God testifying of his gifts. God testifying of his gifts. Not God testifying of his attitude, but God testifying of his gifts. And so what he offered, he offered by faith. But in Romans 10, 17, we know that there Paul said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If Abel offered by faith and faith comes by hearing the word of God, then Abel offered based on hearing the word of God. In other words, God told him what to offer. And he also obviously told Cain what to offer. And yet Cain did not comply. Why? He was a farmer. Perhaps it was more convenient for him to offer the fruit of the ground rather than to obtain an animal sacrifice. But we know as we further examine the scheme of redemption as it unfolds for us through Scripture that that animal sacrifice and the blood involved with that was significant in that it ultimately pointed to the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would take away the sins of the world. There was nothing in that fruit sacrifice, the fruit of the ground, that could possibly have typified the blood of Christ. Therefore, when we put it all together, we can certainly conclude, if we're honest in our examination of it, that indeed God had specified how these men were to worship Him. One complied, the other did not. And that's been true in every dispensation. We can then come to the Mosaic dispensation and we can see in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, the very sons of the high priest Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who were involved in the priestly duties there according to specific instructions that were given in the law. They offered to the Lord, remember, strange, as the King James says, the New King James says, profane fire. They did not obtain the fire that they offered in their service to God as priests, they did not obtain it from the specific altar that was specified from which they were to obtain that fire. They offered fire from another place. It was profane. That means it had not been sanctified, it had not been approved by God. And how did God react to that? They were both struck dead. They both died. And then when we come to the New Testament, and to the culmination of God's plan for saving man, to the church of Jesus Christ through which the manifold wisdom of God was to ultimately be made known according to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, are we then to conclude that whereas God has been so specific about worship in the Mosaic and the patriarchal dispensations that suddenly he is just simply opening the floodgates and letting us worship him in any way we choose according to what makes us feel good? Why would we reach that conclusion? When this is what God had in mind all along, the church, would we not anticipate a specific pattern for the church as we had a specific pattern for the building of the tabernacle and the worship pertaining thereto and as... The temple had a specific pattern and the worship for that. Would we not believe then that the spiritual temple today, the church of Christ, would have a specific pattern of worship? We should look for it. And when we do, we find it. It is there. Five specific acts of worship that are authorized in the New Testament. No more and no less. The very five acts in which we will engage and are engaging now this very morning, are the acts that are authorized by God. And 
They are to be carried out in the manner in which God has specified. That's why there is not a woman involved in leading a prayer in this service. There is not a woman who will read a scripture. There is not a woman who will serve at the Lord's table. There is not a woman who will stand in this pulpit and deliver a discourse of any kind to a mixed assembly of men and women. You see, one of the departures that we are facing today in the Lord's church, and it is becoming more prevalent all the time. A member sent just recently a post from a Memphis area congregation where after a gender role study, as they put it, they have now concluded that they need to expand the role of women in their worship, the Sycamore View congregation. I'm familiar with it when I was a student there. Uh, it was a different time and I think a different congregation at that time. But now they have publicly on their website announced that while they will exclude women from being elders or evangelists, they will expand their role otherwise in terms of the public worship. But that is not an isolated incident. Tragically, it is not. It is happening in more and more places. The departure in the area of male leadership in worship. And some, as we have cited, have gone the way of many in denominationalism and advocating leadership roles for women in violation of the clear teaching of the New Testament. Or is it in clear violation? Is it in violation of the clear teaching? That's what we're going to examine for the next few moments this morning. You see, those who have involved themselves in such departures claim that the teaching that prohibits a public role for women in worship is teaching that was cultural. That is, it was related to the culture of that day and therefore was not commandment for today. But the scriptures teach nothing of the sort. And we'll see that in this lesson. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the key text that we will be using in our discussion of this very, very pertinent and timely subject and one about which we need to be fully informed and fully convicted. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire, therefore, Paul writes, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now let's simply analyze these very crucial verses that pertain to our subject at hand. Paul, first of all, in verse 8, writes, I desire, I desire. Now while the word from the original may be translated desire, it's a much stronger term really, and in this context, 
certainly cannot indicate this is what I wish would happen, but if it doesn't, I'm okay with it. <laughs> that is not what Paul is saying. It is the indication and can be involved in the word, and it obviously is here, of a, a determination, a determined will, a determined will. And it becomes very obvious that that's what Paul is saying here. Not that I wish this would be the case, but if it's not, I'm okay. No, this is my determination. This is my will. And he was an inspired man. In other words, it takes on the force of a command. And that becomes abundantly clear as we continue in the context. I demand, I determine, this is my will, in other words, that what? That the men, that the men, stop right there. Paul does not say that mankind, there is a word in the original language of the New Testament that indicates mankind. And if Paul had in mind mankind, that is mankind and womankind, in other words, if he had in mind all men or women, he would have used that word, anthropos. He does not use that word. He uses the word for male, for male. Andros, the plural of aner. It means the male of the species. It means nothing more, nothing less. Paul very carefully made clear that it is not mankind under discussion here in this part of his teaching. It is the male of the species. What is it that he demands for the male of the species? That the male pray everywhere that the male pray everywhere. Now, obviously the context immediately is in worship, but the principles would apply beyond the worship assembly to, to any assembly as we shall see, and to the conduct and the manner of life based upon the total context here of modesty. Modesty doesn't only apply in the worship assembly, it applies anywhere, obviously. And so these principles are, are extended beyond the worship assembly. But here, he says, I desire, demand, if you will, that the men, the male of the species, pray. Well, in the assembly, are women not allowed to pray? Well, of course they are. They must pray. Women must engage in prayer just as men do. So he is not prohibiting prayer, period, on the part of women. Therefore, he must be prohibiting what? The leading in prayer, obviously. He's talking about taking a public part, a leadership role in worship, and prayer is specifically mentioned here. But obviously any other activity that would involve female leadership over male leadership would be included, and we'll see that as we go beyond. So what have we learned thus far? Paul's, Paul's declaration, his determination is that the male of the species would be the one leading in prayer and also in the other aspects of worship. Women, of course, can participate in prayer. They must participate in prayer to be pleasing to God, but they cannot participate in a way to take the lead. And where does this apply? I desire, desire therefore, that the men pray everywhere, everywhere, in every location, in every mixed assembly of men and women, Throughout the brotherhood, Paul says, this has universal application. Now then, he adds, lifting up holy hands. Lifting up holy hands. 
Well, lifting up hands in prayer was one of the postures that we read about in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 8, 22. Uh, the book of Nehemiah mentions it. This was a, a posture in prayer where many times those praying would lift up their hands with palms up as if to receive the blessing from the Lord. That is not a binding posture in prayer. It was one of the means of prayer. Being prostrate on the ground uh, was a position in prayer of which we read uh, in Scripture. And so there is no binding posture in prayer. But there's a figure of speech involved here. Lifting up holy hands. In other words, holy conduct. Paul is dictating that those men, the male of the species who lead the prayers, be men who are holy in their lives. There's no such thing as literally holy hands. That's a figure of speech. He's using the hands to represent holy living. That's obvious. And so those who lead in prayer are to be those who are worthy of leading in prayer because their lives are holy, without wrath and doubting or disputing, as some translations give it. In other words, again, addressing holy life. If someone were to get up to lead in prayer, and you knew that his life was filled with wrath and anger and things that were contrary to the will of God, you couldn't feel very good about being led in prayer by such an individual. And so Paul addresses the character of the one who is to be leading, but he makes it abundantly clear it is to be the man. Now then, <clears throat> look at verse, verse 9, beginning, and verse 10 included. In like manner also, in other words, here's the, here's the address now to the women, on the other hand. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, it's not our purpose in this lesson to go into a detailed discussion of modesty and the principles of modesty. We've done that in other lessons. We'll most likely do that again at some time, the Lord willing. But the modesty issue is addressed here. And what is addressed is the kind of extreme that would call attention to a woman, whether she has too little on or, frankly, has too much on, uh, in terms of calling undue attention to herself, rather than being the kind of woman who dresses properly and presents herself properly with godliness and shows her godliness with good works. And then we come to verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, analyze this verse with me. Let a woman learn. The word learn is in a present form. It's a present imperative. Present meaning ongoing. It's an imperative, meaning this is a command. The women are to learn continually. That is, this is to be in a continual situation. This is not an unusual cultural situation I'm addressing. Women are to continually learn how? In silence. Some translations render it quietness, and that's frankly... Uh, a better rendering because the word silence in our language may indicate absolute silence. Paul is not enjoining upon the woman in the assembly here absolute silence. 
If he were enjoining absolute silence on the woman, she couldn't open her mouth to sing. She'd never be able to sing if she had to be completely silent throughout the worship assembly. The word here literally in the original means a submissive, quiet spirit, quietness. In other words, submission. But it does not prohibit her from uttering a sound. It does allow for her to be able to participate in the worship by singing. And she does some teaching in that way, does she not? But not in a way that violates Paul's commandment. Because we're to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The woman is permitted to do that. The woman is commanded to do that. All Christians are commanded to do that. But she is to learn in quietness. And here's the prohibition. I do not permit a woman to teach. Period. No, women teach. We have women teachers who teach the younger classes. We have women who teach other women. Obviously, that is not what Paul is prohibiting. We are dealing with any mixed assembly with men and women, and he prohibits here teaching, that is, delivering a public discourse in a mixed assembly. She could not stand in this pulpit as I'm standing in it right now to this group of people and deliver a didactic discourse. Didasco is the word here. And it has in its meaning in this context, obviously, though it's used in various ways in Scripture, here a public discourse in a mixed assembly. She is not permitted by Scripture to do that. That's why you have never seen it happen here, and hopefully you never will see it happen here. Because Paul says... I do not permit it. Now keep in mind that word desire, back in verse 8. I desire, we said it's a stronger word than just a wish, and doesn't this word do not permit, by way of contrast, make that abundantly clear? I determine that the men pray everywhere, and I do not permit the women to pray everywhere. There's the obvious relationship. I deny the right of women to, and yet I affirm and determine that it is to be the man. But something else here. Not only do I not permit a woman to teach, but also to have authority over a man. What Paul clearly says here, I do not allow a woman to teach over the man or to in any way have authority in any, in any display, in any action that would represent having authority over the man in the assembly, in a mixed worship situation, a mixed setting, I do not permit that. I do not permit his having authority. In the King James, the word usurp is there. Or to usurp authority over the man. The word usurp is not in the original. And sometimes, because that word usurp is there, there perhaps have been those who've said, well, she's not to usurp the authority. That is, she's not to forcibly take the authority, but if the elders give her the authority, then she can do it. And some elderships have now given her the authority. That's not what the text says at all. She is not to teach the man or to have authority, not to take it away from him. She just can't have it, period. She does not have that authority. It's not a question of taking it versus being given permission to do it, she cannot be given permission to do it by an eldership because Paul, an inspired apostle, prohibits that completely. Now, the question then arises, was this prohibition 
permanent or temporary? Was it culture or was it continual commandment? Well, quickly, let the next two verses answer the question. For Adam was first, formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. There it is. That's not cultural. That's creation, first of all. Adam was created first and was to be the head, the leader of his family. That's an eternal principle that has nothing to do with culture of the New Testament times. What anybody practiced at a particular culture, that is the creation order. And secondly, in verse 14, Paul affirms that Eve was the one who led the way into sin by being deceived. And Adam, apparently out of love for her and through her influence, ate of the fruit. But Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. And these are the two reasons that are stated for the permanent prohibition that we have been reading from the pen of the inspired apostle Paul. It says nothing about culture. It says nothing about, well, this is good for now, but when the times change and the women's lib movement hits, and when all of that comes into it, then you need to rethink it. Paul never gave that concession. Never gave that concession. And every other passage in the New Testament confirms this eternal principle of male leadership. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 and following. Ephesians 5, 22 and following. And let me add this. For those who would say, well, this was something that Paul was accommodating the culture concerning. He was accommodating the culture of the time. In, this, in the culture of the time, it wouldn't have been good for women to do this. But now we're in a different culture. As we've said, the two reasons given in verses 13 and 14 preclude that conclusion. But let me add something else. You remember over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? It's interesting that the same writer in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 dealt with some circumstances that were peculiar to that time. Some distress that was occurring at Corinth. And it's interesting to me that at one point in that discussion, he says, he writes in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 7, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good, listen to this, because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. They were under a very uh, distressing time, a time of persecution. It would be more difficult to be in a married relationship than to be single. That's what he's saying. Because of the present distress, I'm saying it's good for a man to remain as he is. But then he says, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. It's for your own good that I'm telling you this because of the present distress. That is a situation. That is a situation that those who contend for an expanded role in women claim exists today. Where in Scripture is there any indication that that's the case? Since Paul, and we do have a case where he did issue some judgment because of the situation, why wouldn't we expect, if this is a cultural context in 1 Timothy 2, why wouldn't we expect some similar language from him 
to the language we just read in 1 Corinthians 7. Wouldn't it make sense that if Paul wanted to make sure that this was cultural and temporary, that he would say so? And he did not say so. In fact, he said just the opposite. Adam was created first, Eve was deceived, and this is forevermore God's arrangement for male leadership in worship. Then quickly he adds, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing, verse 15, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And there are some different views on the meaning of saved in childbearing. Some relate it to the plan of salvation, that Christ would be born of a woman, and thus salvation would come through the Christ. That's one view. The other dominant view is that childbearing here is a synecdoche, that is a figure of speech where the part is put for a whole. And childbearing is put for her total role as homemaker and wife and mother. And I would lean toward that conclusion myself. But the last part of verse 15 enjoins upon all women, what? Faithfulness throughout their lives in order to be saved. Women are not inferior to men. In intelligence, they're not inferior to men. And God has given woman an important responsibility in the family and in the church for that matter that should never be underestimated. However, for the reasons cited in this lesson, he has given the male the leadership role in the home and in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And our eternal salvation rests upon our respect for that divine arrangement and for all of the teaching of the New Testament, for that matter. Now, as we close, let me ask you, what about your respect for God's plan of salvation? Do you respect that God has said that you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? John 8, 24. Do you respect that God has said that you must repent of your sins or perish eternally? Luke 13, 3, as Jesus stated it. Do you respect that God has said that you must confess Jesus Christ to be the Christ, the Son of the living God? Matthew 10, 32. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Do you respect what God has said through His only begotten Son that he who believes and is baptized will be saved? Mark 16, 16. And beyond that, do you respect that as you rise to walk in newness of life following that baptism that you must be faithful unto death in order to receive the crown of life. If you respect it, you must obey it. Come to him or come home to him as we stand to sing.